Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM. Hi, I'm Paul Burke and I write about crime fiction. Today my guest is Imran Mahmood, barrister and author of two brilliant crime novels, You Don't Know Me and I Know What I Saw. They're original, entertaining and thought-provoking reads. Hello, Imran, and welcome to Crime Time FM. Lovely to have you here. Hello, Paul. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Why don't we just dive straight in? Did you harbour a, a desire to be a writer, or is it born out of your experience as a barrister? Um, I think it's, there's probably truth uh, in it, whichever way you approach it. So mm-hmm. a part of, for me, part, part of being a barrister was telling a story. And um, one of the first things my pupil master said to me um, uh, 30 years ago when I was training with him was that when you're doing jury speeches, what you really want to do is you want to tell the story of what happened rather than just going through the facts or going through your kind of points of law. You want to tell the story because telling the story is the way of communicating with people um, that sticks. It's the most powerful tool. And so that, that, that was kind of in there. And then I found the more I did the work and the more gruesome it got, the more I needed um, the opportunity to tell stories in a different way where I had a bit more control. Because the, you know, the criminal justice system presents you with you know, every kind of story you can imagine, but they're, they're not neat stories. They don't have clean edges. They are not always resolved in the way that you want them to be resolved. So they're not that good for you mentally. If you write your own stories, you, you can take charge of that. You can control the narrative and you know, you know how, how deep to go, how dark to go. And, you know, at the end of it, you can resolve it. You can, um, you know, you can lead you, your character into the light and you can, you, know, you can tackle difficult subjects through storytelling, mm-hmm. um, which means that, you know, but, you know, you don't always get the chance to meet a, you know, a homeless person or, or you mm-hmm. don't get get the chance to meet a young man who's in a gang but through a story you, you can find out something about people that you wouldn't otherwise meet and you can hear the challenges the issues that they face so do you find people surprising then i mean have you sort of have you learned to avoid preconceptions in a sense because you're faced with all sorts of different kinds of people all the time in court aren't you yeah no that's probably the most uh, in, incisive um question of all that yes you, you have to abandon all preconceptions yeah. and it's something that you learn you know you, the first young person you meet and you know if they do something surprising you know like you know they're fully fully in charge of all of the facts yeah. <laughs> and that surprises you and then it happens again and then it surprises you or you meet somebody who is you know on the face of it super bright highly educated very articulate and you know can't sometimes can't grasp basic points mm. everything's a surprise and the one thing i suppose i've learned about people is that you know people are the sum of not just you know their genes and their kind of genetic makeup but also the sum of the their experiences and um you know because it's the experiences which feed the memories and the memories which make the person and you know, that's what makes everybody different. It's the fact that everybody's had a different life experience and that kind of complicated tapestry that 
everybody you know is woven from makes everybody different makes everybody special and you know means that nobody's the same even though we like to kind of categorize people so that yes. we can understand the world it's you know we want to be able to do that we want to say this is a category of thing this is a category mm-hmm. of person you know all the victims of this kind of assault are this kind of person we we want to do that but you know the more you try and do that the more you realize that that's not that's not sensible no indeed i mean that's something we're going to dig into i hope a lot more but i just want to go back to a couple of things you said there um about the catharsis really you you've been dealing with serious cases haven't you i mean you deal with some seriously traumatic stuff so uh there is a need you you can't keep yourself divorced from that. There is a need for a catharsis, and that the writing provides that. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. yeah, I think that's right. And we have only just recently started to become alive to this issue about mental uh, well being and wellness in the profession. Yeah, only just now, you know, we start to see from the professional bodies things about wellness and self care. But you know, that wasn't in place thirty years ago when I started. Mm. You know, you could deal back, you know, in back-to-back trials with catastrophe and calamity after catastrophe and calamity and mm. gruesome, you know, criminality after gruesome criminality or even miscarriages of justice. It's all pretty grim, whichever side of the fence, you know, your verdict lands, whether it's a not guilty. If, if it's a not guilty, you're, you're dealing with somebody who has been you know, wrongly accused, maybe, mm. Um, who has suffered, you know, f- for years um, uh, under the cloud of criminal proceedings, who's lost their reputation, who's then under the scrutiny of 12 members of the public and has been interviewed by the police and, you know, suspicion cast on them, you know, f- from outside, but then from inside, because then their families are susp- suspicious of them. So, you know, they have to deal with all of that. That's pretty horrible. Um, but on the other side of the fence, you know, there are people who are guilty of awful crime mm-hmm. and yeah i think there's only so much of it that the human psyche can take and uh, thankfully you know that our experience of crime is quite limited you'd think by looking at the news that there's crime everywhere mm-hmm. yes but in, in real terms it's pretty rare i mean if you're burgled you probably be burgled once twice in your life um, or if you're the victim of an assault it'll probably happen if it happens at all, it might happen mm. once or twice. And, you know, maybe as human beings, we are um, capable of withstanding, you know, s- short spells of that kind of experience. Yeah. If you have to see it day in, day out, <laughs> back to back, and um, you know, you, you've got to desensitise yourself to it as much as you can. But, you know, it, I suspect it's going to come through the cra- cracks. It's going to filter in. Yeah, no, it must do, obviously. Um, and you make a very good point about the, the day-to-day contact with it, although the news would give you this impression that the world is falling to hell in a handcart, you know, and so you get that from the news. But um, just to go back to one point you made before we get on to this general point about people and what people expect. So when you're writing the novel, you get to control the outcome. But do you get to control? I mean, for instance, how organic was the... Uh, the story behind I Know What I Saw? I mean, so it's a really good question. That, you know, there are, there are those people who plot their novels meticulously, and I'm not one of those people. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then there are those people who write uh, characters who are reliable narrators of the story they're telling, which, you know, is, you know, those people who, who can do it um, and do it well. You know, it, it, it's, it's, it's amazing and it's, you know, it's wonderful to read. I have never so far done that. My narrators tend to be unreliable. But that's, I think, because um, it reflects human nature. Um, yes. People aren't always reliable. Even reliable people aren't always reliable. Sometimes everyone lies. We know this from our experience in the courtroom, where before anybody comes along to give their evidence, they have to swear an oath or an affirmation. Mm. And what the court is really saying is, we know that there is a tendency, an instinct in the human being to lie. We're aware of this. Mm -hmm. People lie. You will lie. You have lied. You will lie in the future. But please, 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 for, for these next 30 minutes, don't lie. <laughs> if you can <laughs> at all help it. And if you do lie, then there might be really serious consequences. Mm -hmm. so, so, so that's you know that's the standard to which you know we hold witnesses in a criminal court. But that, you know that's not the standard that's upon the ordinary individual every day. I mean, we are you know sometimes we're good, sometimes we're bad. We hope that for most of the time that we you know we are good and we're good and we're honest. But you yeah. know we're not. I think we're not always reliable. No, that's true. I, I think the point you make there is that somebody's actually asking you to consider not lying, whereas in life, you're not holding yourself to that higher standard. So as we're talking about people now, there's a, a strange feature of human nature, perhaps, based on what we've just been talking about, which is that people want certainty. And the one thing we don't have is certainty. And that's the whole point of this book, in a sense, you know, is, is to look at those issues. Um, but you made a point in something I, I heard you talking about before in a previous interview about the nature of a trial and how it tries to focus everything into a narrative that becomes, in a sense, I won't say the truth because it doesn't become the truth. The whole point of what you, you know, you're writing about is that nothing ever becomes the truth, in a sense. But it becomes the sort of accepted story. Um, I mean, what you were talking about was actually chaos to order. Can you tell us a little bit about that, please? Yeah, so um, what, what I found uh, fascinating about the whole process of a trial is that you get the 12 members of the public who are there to decide facts. And they will weigh whatever evidence um, comes before them, and they'll have to um, ascribe it a certain value. Um, but, but at the end of that process, when they, when a jury says guilty or not guilty, what they're, in a sense, what they're doing is that they are deciding truth mm. in a very abstract way, because the fact that they've decided guilty or not guilty, or truth or, or lie, doesn't in fact make the truth true. No. It's just a construct. You might say that that's just a feature of, that's a microcosm of the feature of the way ordinary truths work, because it's, I think it's a very difficult subject. Um, you're, we, t we talk these days about um, personal truths. You, you hear people talking about my truth, this is my truth. Yes, yeah. And, and initially I was very suspicious about that. Mm. Um, but then it began to occur to me that people's truths are formed 
from what they um, remember. Uh, and memory is a very strange thing. Um, and I just, just to give you an example, I might say to my wife, if she asks me, um, that I did switch the gas off. And I might have a very clear memory of that. And she might, uh, having seen the gas on, have a very clear memory that, <laughs> that it wasn't on. Now, unless I'm challenged about my memory and presented with um, facts which um, dispute it, I begin to continue to form more and more concrete um, mm. ideas about what I have experienced. And they become more and more embedded as time goes on. And when they're not challenged, they ultimately become a truth. Mm -hmm. That truth begins to inform how we develop. So we turn into the kind of person that we turn into because of our experiences. And if our experiences aren't, aren't uh, as we've remembered them, if, if they're different, then we've, we've slightly constructed our own reality. Yes. Um, because we've, we've believed a thing which, which may or may not be true. We might consider, for example, that we've reacted to a particular situation um, with real cowardice. Um, but an independent observer might think the opposite, might have said, oh, the way that person dealt with that thing was very brave. Mm. Or vice versa, I, I, I might um, be under a the kind of misapprehension that I've reacted very bravely to something that somebody else will think, well, that's, you know, that's not, you've, you, you've created your own reality here. And so then we've got this idea of a kind of, not even a spectrum of truth, but, but truth as a, you know, reduced to abstract mm -hmm. concepts only. There's no real truth. All, all we've got is our memory of what might be our truth. And it's it. I was reading this book about time, uh, where some physic I don't understand the physics, but some physicist was telling us that everybody has their own individual time. So the faster you move, time moves at a different rate. Yes. I, I and the higher you are, the slower it gets or faster it gets. So everybody, because everybody's moving at a different speed and they're relatively at different heights from one another, everybody has their own clocks. We don't, so there's no independent time. You can't be certain of even what time it is. And my time isn't the same as your time. We're all operating to different. And I wonder whether the truth is now a bit like that, where we're all operating to our own constructions of truth and our own kind of constructed reality. And I, I wonder what that means for the rest of the world. Well, it's pretty scary. But I think that's the way I've always looked at history as well, though, because I think, you know, if you ask people, what is history? They'll say it's the past. But it absolutely 100% is not the past. It's what's written about the past. It's what we remember about the past. But it absolutely is not. Well, that's the whole point. It's not an absolute, but people are kind of assuming it's an absolute. You know, the, the whole way British history has been written determines the way it's come out. And we know damn well now that there's nowhere near the whole truth in that. So it's kind of a scary concept. But I mean, if we look at your first novel, this is, this is interesting that you raised this point, because if we look at your first novel, You Don't Know Me, or the, the defendant delivering um, his own closing speech, and he's delivering it to a jury, you put us in there as well. We become a member of the jury. Um, and then you, you act, what you're actually asking us to do then is judge on what we've just been speaking about, aren't you? You're asking us yeah. to weigh these things up. Yeah, and, and, that, and that's always been the almost impossible task of every jury. So they have to listen to a thing and decide whether a thing is true. Mm. They have 
personally witnessed to. And the, and the only way they, they can do that is to listen to an account provided by somebody else. And that's only got any value if the, if the account is, re, is trustworthy and reliable. And how do, you, how do you know whether a witness is trustworthy mm. or reliable? And the answer is you don't really. You've slightly got to take a leap of faith. You know, I've one of the interesting things I, I think about um, particularly jury trials is that you, you get to the end of a jury trial and the jury has decided the thing that they've decided. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes somebody says to me, oh, do you think he's guilty? And I usually, I usually don't have a view. <laughs> and the reason is, it's, A, it's not necessary really for me to yeah, have a view. Yeah. Uh, B, it doesn't really, it, it doesn't really help if I have a, if I have a view. All, I, all, you know, all I'm concentrating on is where are the weaknesses in the, in the evidence and where are mm-hmm. the strengths. Try, try to bring out the best of, of, of the bits I need because of the system that, that we're in. Um, but ultimately, somebody else makes the decision about you know, whether somebody is guilty. So somebody says to me, how, how can you represent somebody who's guilty? And I always say, well, I don't know they're guilty. Somebody else decides that you, uh, as a juror, will mm-hmm. decide they're guilty. And it's only after that point that they're guilty. And until then, I'm representing somebody who's, you know, shrouding yeah, Absolutely. Back. And so let, let's say that that leads us on to the second novel. I'm curious here. You can talk about the opposites if you want, because this is a psychological mystery and it's very different from the first novel. On the other hand, for me, what binds it to the first novel is the kind of themes, you know, the questions we've just been discussing are the sort of things you're exploring in the book such as the nature of truth. And we're going to get on to things like memory and that, but I think it's a good point. Anyway, please tell us a little bit about I Know What I Saw. Uh, so I Know What I Saw. Uh, it's interesting because um, I was doing a panel recently with Erin um, Kelly, uh, mm-hmm. this writer, who was asking me whether I'd chosen the character in I Know What I Saw kind of deliberately to be the opposite of the character in You Don't Know Me. Right. And, and I hadn't thought about that until she'd said it. And, and then when she'd said it, I, I stopped to think about it. And actually, they are, in a way, polar opposites. I mean, they have similarities, but they're opposites in the sense that in You Don't Know Me, the character is young, uh, black, and underprivileged, mm-hmm. and deprived of any access to um, privilege. And in I Know What I Saw, we've got the opposite. We've got a highly educated Oxbridge well-cultured, literate in um, all kinds of different things, not just in literature and those things, but in art Mm -hmm. and society. And, you know, but but still both of them on the fringes of society. And the the character in I Know What I Saw is a a man who had everything, who then one day finds himself with nothing. And he's uh, living on the streets. He's homeless, and he witnesses a murder. And then he's um, he becomes this dichotomy. So to the police officers, he reports the murder too. On the one hand, they don't want to believe him because he's just a tramp. Mm-hmm. He's yeah. living on the streets, and, he, and he's nothing. But on the other hand, he's kind of superbly articulate, and so you know, not easily discountable. Um, but then you know, when they go and track down the things that he was describing, the murders that the murder that he saw, that they find that it's it, you know, it can't have happened. It's impossible. It's yes. there's no murder, there's no body, there's no, you know, even the place where it happened doesn't really exist. 
And so then I, what I really wanted to do was to just explore um, that sense of um, being an outlier in society where, you know, you have every opportunity available to you to, 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 to become firmly embedded in the um, establishment mm-hmm. and reject it. And one of the things which, which can cut off a person from stability and how, how slender are those ties which root you either, you know, yeah, from yeah. sanity to insanity, from health to um, bad health, from, you know, a, a member of society to uh, an outcast. And, and for, for Zander, it's, you know, they are, it's a, it's a you know, a, a death by a thousand cuts in a way. You know, there are small things which happen, but it's the incremental nature of the experiences that he suffers, which, which, creates the person he ends up being and then his vision of who he is and, i mean so people some people have read it have, have said that they found him quite frustrating because they wanted him to succeed and they wanted him to you know right. do well and mm-hmm. part of my point with him was that in his mind he's everything he wants to be mm-hmm. at this stage mm-hmm. so if he's abandoned society that's because that's what he wants and if that's what he wants it doesn't behove anybody else to say that isn't what he should want. Yeah. It's interesting you say that, you know, because my reading was slightly different. I felt that what we got in the book was that the police, and, and in fact, to some extent, nearly every other character Zander meets feels frustration with him because he simply he can't deliver an answer that they think is the way they want to hear something in a clear sentences perfectly lined out, start to finish with a story. He's just not capable of that. So it's not in him. And it's funny that I felt that actually what we were feeling as readers was more on his side and feeling, you know, what he was experiencing and the frustration that he then had with himself because he can't do that. So it's interesting that you say that. Um, But I think what we're getting at here is also partly to do with the first novel again. This is about situation. As you pointed out with Xander, as we go through the novel, we get a lot of backstory. So we start to begin to understand what it is that gets him to the point he gets to. And it's a, it's basically a universal story. You know, it's, we could all wind up in that situation. That's the whole point, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, um, you know, one of the most powerful sayings, I think, um, in the English language is, is that saying, you know, there, but for the grace of God, (laughs) go I. And I, and I wonder uh, about that all the time. And I think we don't um, believe it, but it's true. Yeah, I think it has to be true because you can turn a corner and meet a catastrophe, mm. and it can happen in a split second, and that split second can change your life. I, I see it all the time because I, you know, I'll do a case and s- somebody's crossed the road and has been mowed down by a, you know, by a truck, and then they've lost everything. They've lost the ability to walk. They've lost the ability to earn a living. They've lost their self-confidence they've got, you know they've got, they're living a life in pain and it's taken a split second before everything's uh-huh. changed and that's something physical um but how much more frightening i suppose it is when they those changes can happen happen in your head um because then it, it's really you feel as if you're the person who's in control of um, what's going on in your head and so it, that can carry a lot of guilt if you end up, you know, losing the reins in your mind, yes, I find that people, you know, find, you know, themselves responsible for that, and they find, you know, they carry a lot of guilt. 
when actually you know they they shouldn't you know it's the same as a you know, you know a physical condition in many ways it's out of an individual's control but you know, it only takes a few small things to unseat a person and you know, I, I wander around all the time <laughs> worried that it, you know it's going to happen to me and that mm. you know my hair's breath away from it that's, that's I wouldn't say necessarily that but I I'm certainly aware of it and I, I think people just go along and then suddenly something catches you out and it, it makes you more well we're all human that's the whole point you know that we're all vulnerable and we're all we're all subject to that but talking about people um, I think something that comes out with Xander, but also comes out in the first book, is you, you mentioned about outliers in a sense, but we're not. We're marginalizing massive portions of people. Um, I suppose what I'm asking in a way is about the kind of people who come before a court. You know, it's circumstance, it's situation, it's not badness, it, it's not because they're evil, it's, it's because their life chances aren't the same as my life chances. I mean, would you agree with that? Um, I mean, <laughs> To a very large extent, it, uh, that feeds into something I'm writing at the, <laughs> at the moment, which is a, about this notion of freedom and mm. free will. And there's a fair kind of body of scientific evidence now which suggests that we don't have free will, mm-hmm. that we are um, cause and effect, mm. and the thing that you do next is a direct result of the thing which happened immediately before. And the way you react in a particular situation is either a combination of that immediate thing which has happened and your instincts. But your instincts and the way you react are a function of your genes. So you can only act in the way that you act because you are who you are. If you were someone else, then you wouldn't. So you don't have a choice uh, over uh, how you act. Now, if you if you go if you wind that back to the kind of criminal experience um either you are committing um crimes of dishonesty Mm -hmm. um so what what fuels that well it can either be greed so you steal for greed is probably some kind of um it involves some kind of social structuring or psychological structuring so that the circumstances in which you grow up affect uh, how you view property and your need for property or your need right, yeah, yeah. Um, or you know it might be tied to insecurity and your insecurity might be tied to your upbringing um, or you might steal because of a drug addiction well how does the drug addiction itself take hold well that could be because of your family circumstances mm-hmm. it could be that you grew up in a, a difficult household it could be that you grew up in a household where there were lots of drugs it could mm-hmm. be that you are you grew up in a household without parents and then you were exposed to drugs, but whatever it was, you can always end up tracing the root cause to something else. And you know, as unpopular as this is going to be when I say it, there is evidence to suggest that even sexual offences, very many people who commit them have themselves been victims of, I think it's well known, have been the victims yeah, of yeah. Now, that's not to take away responsibility for criminal no. activity away from them, but it's just to recast the whole experience of crime and, and to ask ourselves whether, um, you know, if we're looking at the stats and we see that, you know, 90% of people who commit crime are from deprived 
backgrounds. And then what mm-hmm. does that tell us um, about social responsibility or moral responsibility? Yes. Are uh, we going to take another look at this and ask ourselves whether we should really be applying slightly different metrics to, to those circumstances? You know, I, I wonder whether you can properly hold somebody accountable you know, for things which you can trace back to their childhoods. You know, if somebody's... Mm. Yeah, I, you know, I understand that. If you're being mugged on the street, you want retribution and you want justice. But, you know, if when you, when you speak to the lad, you find out that he's had this horrible life and that he's horribly ad- addicted to cocaine or some other drug and, you know, he's living in misery and pain and feels that there's no future and has, you know, nothing to live for. And... Or, or you know, or he has a lot of anger, which comes from something else. Yes, is... yeah. No, I think that's very interesting. I think the whole point is that we we don't really try to understand. You know, we don't really. Well, it, we don't. No, we don't try to understand the legal system. We don't. We we make assumptions and we draw conclusions very very quickly. So we never do get into discussing these issues. You know, so and that's a, that's an important point. One thing you said about people who who um, come from, let's say, those deprived backgrounds, the estate, get involved with gangs, that sort of thing. Something that struck me as really important, and I'm pretty sure most people really honestly don't think about it this way, but I had aspirations growing up. I pretty much knew I had a chance to go to university. I was going to get a job. All these sort of things were laid out, had a comfortable family life. But you said that these people in these situations have aspirations. And that, that's, that's something I'd like you to explain, but it's a, it's a really good point. In other words, they are exactly the same as us, but without legal roots for their aspirations to be fulfilled, they wind up following another path. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, that's part of the um, condition of human nature is to uh, aspire and to, um, because otherwise you you lose your motivation to to live. You you have to keep on producing. You have to keep aiming higher. And there seems to be a drive in the human being to try and achieve more and to aspire for for better and uh, as you say you know people in deprived circumstances are no different from people in uh, privileged circumstances except for the circumstances of their privilege or lack of it they're still the same people Mm. you know they're still intelligent they are still responsible they're still moral beings social beings you know people who love and who have families and who you know have ambition but if you once you um if you encourage ambition and aspiration in a group of people, and this is what we do in society, we, we encourage yeah. because if you look, what you see is in a consumer society, you see things uh, that you should have. You should have th- this house. You should have this car. Yes. You should have these clothes and you should have these phones and whatever. Once you start creating that demand and the kind of aspirational drives, but you remove from people the tools through which they might achieve it. So, so, so you were saying to a deprived young lad on an estate, yes, you should be a millionaire. You know, just look at all the videos of all these people that you know, who are role models to you. You know, whether they're footballers or whether they're mm. stars, just look at how well they're doing. They're the same as you. Mm. Ormsey came from a you know an underprivileged background. Marcus Rashford wasn't. Born with a silver spoon, no, absolutely. Insane. But what you're really doing is you're selling them a kind of lie. 
you're, you're giving them unachievable aspirations. So, so you're left with this hunger and this yearning to, to do you know, stratospherically well, but nothing to fulfil it. And so, you know, when the easy route presents itself and somebody says, do you want to earn £5,000 a day standing on a street corner? You say yes. Or, you know, a lot of people say yes. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. You and I don't because somebody else has said to us, yeah, you can do that, but it's a huge risk. You have another option. You have plan B, C, D, E, F, G. You can do all of those. You can do literally yeah. almost anything you want. Yeah, no, I, I'm invested in the society. I'm invested in the way it works as it is, even though there are lots of things I'd like to change. Let's go back to Xander then specifically and the issue of memory, because this is at the heart of the novel, at the heart of, of what he is, of who he is rather, and, and who we are, in fact. Tell us a little bit about memory. I mean, memory as a construct um, and how it impacts on the story. I mean, we've got, he has an incredible, uh, we, we have processes for information. We have processes for recall. And of course, for Xander, there's short circuits in those. But, but explain the point of memory in, in the novel, please. Um, one of the things that um, um, judges do in trials is that they'll give a direction to a, a jury um, in certain cases, and they'll say to them, the experience of the court is that the way that, pe that people lay down memory uh, changes if it's done under the conditions of trauma. Mm. And so the way you lay down memories is different. So in other words, what, what, what they're really telling you is you don't really remember it as it was if it's being remembered in trauma. And there's science to, to back this up. Mm -hmm. So then um, because of that, problem with memory um, and your personality being tied up, your persona being tied up in memory, um, it's, for me, it's a, it's a very slippery slope. Because if you've misremembered something, then that has fed into who you've become. Mm. And for Zander and for, for, for everyone else, you know, having memories integral to who you are. And as soon as you stop remembering things, you, you start to cut away parts of who you are. Because without the memory there to back it up, uh, you know, that part of your personality also goes. And for Zander, he's dealing with two things. He's dealing with how trauma has affected the way he's laid down memory. But he's also, he, he's bright enough to understand that not only is there a problem with misremembering, it's like forgetting things, mm -hmm. but the problem with remembering things badly or deliberately yes. badly. Or refusing to remember things as they are, but remembering remembering a different version instead, because that's that's the only version you can live with. So, so I might say to myself, "Oh, I'm not a person who does this, commits this terrible kind of crime." And you know, I'll go through a trial, I'll deny it, I'll be convicted, I'll still deny it, and ultimately that becomes part of my um, persona, my past yeah, history. Right accept that, that vision of myself. Um, and I think that's something that we, so this is the kind of daily battle that we are um, fighting. Every day we are struggling to remember things properly, correctly, accurately. And where we can remember them accurately, 
and as they're feeding into our personas, then we've got to struggle with the question of whether we want to remember those things in that way because of what that means for us and what that does to us and our personas and our psyches. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. It also, because all pretty much all we've been talking about leads us back to the uncertainty. And it, it's kind of scary. In a, as I said, this is what pe- people want, this certainty in a trial, for instance, in particular. They want to know guilty means guilty, bang to rights, end of story, never have to worry about it again. And the reality is completely the opposite. For the story, you put us directly in Xander's head and we get to feel his experience. Um, and I, I, th- I think that that's great. I mean, that, that does make this story much more immediate, but also we, we get to understand what's going on much better uh, in that way. But I'm just wondering about your own relationship with Xander. How was that? I mean, did you, did you ever feel like giving him a break? <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the interesting thing about Xander is that he's based on somebody I met. In, yes, in, right. In real life. Um, when I was a teenager, uh, um, in my local library, there was, a, there was a, a man who you know you would describe as a tramp back then. And he would come to the library and he would sit in the armchairs and he'd read all of this stuff that was a shock to me. Mm. <laughs> that he was sitting there reading Moliere and you know, Sartre and Gide and Camus. And... Um, I couldn't work out, and I ended up speaking to him and asking him, you know, why? Why are you, you know, tell me, <laughs> tell me what's happened to you? And he was pretty flippant about it and said, you know, because I discovered that he was, you know, at university and he had been really successful. And his view was, well, look, I've done, you know, I've done my bit for society and this is, you know, this is what I want to do. And, mm. and nobody's to tell me what... I should or shouldn't want. But, you know, when you asked other people about him, you know, the, the legend was that something awful had happened to him. Mm. Nobody quite knew what, uh, you know, that he'd gone off. To, in fact, he'd gone to London and he'd come back, you know, after this kind of odyssey, uh, you know, a changed and much reduced man, you know, according to some people. But for him, you know, maybe he'd found who he was. And so when I was writing Zandra, I obviously had him in my head. Um, and I wanted to, so, so he's, he's written in first person present to make, uh, which gives it that feeling of immediacy and mm. like claustrophobia, because I wanted to convey this feeling of what it's like to be in, inside his head and the things that he's feeling as he's living each day. Um, and then I thought about, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe we give him a break. <laughs> maybe we give him a break. And there are moments in it where he's getting a break. Yes. But something else is pulling him and keeps pulling him. Because ultimately that's, you know, that I, I, I don't know, I find that that's probably part, part of a reality, which is, you know, the reality that I, that I see more often which is that, you know, yeah, as much as we crave the happy, sunny endings, mm. you know, because it gives us that feeling of comfort, that there's, you know, that it's, I don't know, it feels like a betrayal of ordinary human experience if we keep doing that. Yes, I agree. No, I do agree. I, I think that um, because there's a truth to the novel, isn't there, and it's going to stand out or not. How much then does that make you Amit? Again, <laughs> um, I, I hadn't intended it 
uh, to be that way. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, probably, quite, <laughs> probably quite a bit. Um, for for the for Zander, Amit is, in many ways, he is a glimpse of innocence in a world yeah. where he hasn't really experienced any. And f for him, it's a shaft of sunlight um, in this kind of quite dark world. And, you know, he, in a way, I think he yearns for that. Mm. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't a past he had. It was no. a past he could have had, it, that, you know, that it could have been him and he could have had this existence which was, you know, slightly less fractured fractious slightly less contaminated but maybe not not as rich so so it, it has the simplicity but he doesn't have the same depth and that Zander has because he doesn't have the same stuff happen to him mm. and i just wanted to, to ask that question lightly which was you know which was the better experience which would we rather be do we want to be yeah i see the person who lives life you know, in innocence, because that's because it's nice. Mm. To have, or you know, is is the more battered and bruised life? Is it not just more authentic, but is it just is it more valuable for mm. the the slings and arrows? Yeah, for what we learn. Yeah, absolutely. And was it how was it writing this novel? I mean, you know, they always talk about the second album syndrome. I actually do think though that there is a point here. You know, writers, you had a high concept in a sense in the first novel. A lot of writers you'll find will put everything they know into the book, the first book, because they want you to be impressed with the knowledge and so on. And it doesn't mean it's a bad read, but you find out in the second novel how good a writer somebody is in relation to character and, and uh, how, how they deal with um, that rather than just stories, you know, but real character. And that's what makes a, a literary read, if you like, rather than just an ordinary enjoyment. Um, so how was that experience? I mean, did you write this before COVID or was it during COVID that the novel was? Um, I mean, both. <laughs> ah. both. I mean, it's, it's, it, again, it's another, you know, brilliant question because it was hard. And I was told by a, um, a book reviewer, oh, it's, your second novel is going to be difficult. And she, she, she was a book reviewer, but also a, a writer. She'd written right. You know, a dozen novels, and you know, a talented writer. And I said, "No, no, no, it'll be fine." And she said, "No, it won't be. It'll be really difficult." <laughs> and I said, yeah, "I'll be all right." And she said, "No, it's going to be really tough." And I said, "Well, I've more or less written it. I'm telling you, it's going to be so difficult." And she was right. It was really difficult. And part of it is it is what you say, which is that you have your whole life to write the first one. Yeah, you, know, you have. If you know, if you're fifty, you've had fifty years to write it. The second one you're trying to do in a year or two mm. um and for me I, it wasn't as if so if i was writing a a returnable character i could say you know book two is easier because i'm writing about detective blogs and now i can springboard off the back of what i've already written and i can improve it and i can give him more depth and more stuff can happen to him but because i'm writing a totally different book each time um Book two can't be a version of book one. It can't mm. be similar in any way. It's going to be completely different. And yeah, it was t it was tough. I, it's, some people say you learn 
to write. That's where you learn to write. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Books too. <laughs> and yeah, I did a lot of learning. I haven't quite mastered it, but I did a lot of learning with books in. Yeah, it was really difficult. I think the other thing for me about, I, I read a lot of crime fiction, but I like crime fiction that is a social critique as well. And I can see that you're very comfortable uh, in that in the book. I mean, we've just been talking about the issues that the book raises as much as the story, you know. Um, I mean, are you comfortable with that, the idea of books as a sort of education, novels as an education in a sense? Well, it, I've always thought that it's very difficult um, to to meet. You can't meet everybody. And you, know, you can sit down with a person of colour and listen to their stories um, of what that means to their experience. Mm. But that's quite a hard conversation to have because you yes. can only have that discussion from a place of su supreme honesty. Otherwise, what you're getting is stylized versions of, yes, of course, yeah. both experience and the telling. Whereas the, I, I, the, the, the power in story is that you can reach a lot of people with a message or you know, your, your view of the world and you can do it in story and you can do it without you know, forcing the issue down yes. someone's throat. And, you know, that's the power of all story, isn't it? It's, it's, it's to tell the, it, it's to make the commentary in a way which sticks and, and in a way which is without judgment, um, you know, where you're, not, where you're not being told what to feel, where you make up your mind. You, know, you can read, I don't know, you can read To Kill a Mockingbird, which is, you know, set in a particular time in the South and the United yes, States. Yeah. You know, at a very critical moment in, in its history. But you're being told it by a child and without judgment and you're free to reach your own conclusions. But the way the story is driven is, you know, you're, you're being led a, a, a longer path, but it's, it's done so skillfully. You can apply it to, you know, today as much as you, you, you ever did to, to a book of its time. And mm. there's power in that returnable power in that because the the big issues are you know few there are there are a yes, few right. and they return again and again and you know equality or discrimination mm. is a returnable theme and you know if, if you don't know how to feel or you feel a particular way and it's the wrong way and you read a story and that story changes the way that you appreciate someone's life and that can only be a good thing they think yeah and it's a wasted opportunity if, if all you're doing is you know you're telling a tale which has no other purpose but entertainment then i think that's a slightly a missed opportunity yeah i mean i get a little bit suspicious actually because authors are so keen to say you know i'm entertaining people well i i kind of take that for a given you know if your novel isn't entertaining then nobody's going to read it anyway but if that is all it's about, then, you know, you might as well watch daytime television or something. Yeah. You know? So I, no, I do I, believe that. Yeah. Slightly changing the topic, and then we'll lighten up a little bit after this one. But this one's a, a general question about um, the legal system, actually, which has changed an awful lot in recent years. Um, my fear is that you haven't got a democracy if you haven't got a functioning legal system, a justice system that's available to everybody. Hmm. Um, and I think it sneaks under the radar. The reason is because we'll all, we all know we'll need the NHS. and We probably all have used the NHS. So if somebody came along and said, right, we're cutting the NHS budget by 10 billion tomorrow, there'd be an uproar. 
but it doesn't happen with the legal profession. I'd like you to just tell us a little bit about that and how it's been during COVID as well, please. Again, thank you for asking this question because it's it's a it's a it's an issue quite close to my heart. I, I've um, been practicing in crime for thirty years, and when I mm. started, we had a criminal justice system which was properly funded, mm. um, which meant that um, as a barrister, if I was um, defending somebody, I could pick up a brief, and I could spend a week preparing it in peace, you know, looking at all of the evidence carefully. Um, because the way that the, the fees were structured allowed for that level of preparation. Mm. Then, 20 years ago, and then year on year since then, the, the funding has been cut. Every mm. year, successive governments cut funding. So that now, legal aid funding for um, criminal cases is so bad that there are people, and this has been happening for years, who will pick up a brief on the morning of a trial, doing the best they can with it, mm. and running with it. Because you can't afford um, any longer to spend a week preparing a trial or to, you know, to prepare it properly. You've just got to... Uh, right. So you, you, you get what you're given. You try and cram as much work as you can just to survive because the rates are just so terrible. And to give you an idea of the way that paper structures, government decided that if you went to court to do a short hearing, like a, a hearing with a plea or to ask for disclosure or whatever it was. Yeah, right. You would travel, whatever it was, an hour or two hours to get to court. You'd spend two hours waiting and then an hour, half an hour, whatever, doing the case. The government decided that for the first five of those hearings, you wouldn't get paid. Um, and that any hearing after that, so that you see you have to be six before you get paid anything, you might get, initially it was £46.50 to do that sixth hearing. And then they had this structure where they said, if you do a trial, we'll pay you for day one of the trial, but we won't pay you for day two. And then they had another system which said, if you um, if your client pleads on the day of trial, so once you've done all the pre preparation, yes, we right. won't pay you for having um, prepared the trial. So the whole thing has been a kind of mess from, from you know for years now, and the, and the reason that they've got away with it is for exactly the reason that you said, which is people don't expect to be wanting to use the criminal justice system. No. And, you know, they think, public on the whole thinks, that the criminal justice system is there to protect criminals. Mm. That's, that's the kind of view they take. And then the papers always jump on this and talk about fat cat lawyers have been saying this for years. And they'll single out one person who probably not on legal aid and a lot of money because in yeah, one year right. they were paid for three trials, which took three years. <laughs> And they just happen to be paid in the same... Yeah, yeah. And they'll do this kind of crazy thing. And so we're left now with a very firmly two-tier justice system. And I say that because lots of people I know no longer do legal aid um, crime. Mm. They work there because it, it doesn't pay well enough. No, can't afford to. Mm. Um, a lot of silks, kind of, so the top, kind of the cream of the profession, yes. won't even do crime. 
they'll they'll go off to the Caymans or they'll you know they'll sit on the board of some uh, blue chip company mm. or they'll do civil work or they do regulatory work where they'll be paid well 10 times better than they would be paid in crime and that's even when they don't necessarily want to do that work but you know for them it's a no-brainer because they can do a small bit of civil work for five thousand pounds or they can spend two weeks doing a trial which might take two weeks to, to prepare for half that mm. that's you know that's the problem and so yeah we all suffer as a result of it because the criminal justice system is the guardian of our our democracy as you know as you, as you put it yeah and i, I think um well it, it is a situation that's going to get worse unless we make some serious efforts to address it um to slightly lighten up then on a, on a more positive note you don't know me is actually going to be on the telly at the end of the year isn't it tell us a little bit about that yeah so i was i was very fortunate uh, because i i mean i didn't know this at the time but it, at first it was optioned by um snowden productions who mm. are fantastic and they they um ruth um who is the the head of it was making stuff for J.K. Rowling, who may, you know, in, in her kind of Robert Carbrave mode. Right, yeah. Took his calling and all of that. And um, so, so she optioned it, and I went to see her, and she says, oh, yeah, we, you know, I really love this, and I really want to make it. And I just kind of nodded along, didn't know what else <laughs> what to say to that. Obviously thrilled by it. Um, and then people were saying to me, look, it's the chances of it actually being made are almost zero. And, you know, I was happy with that. I was happy just by the fact mm. that it's been and then she would phone me up and say, oh, we've got Tom Edge, who's going to write the screenplay. And I would say, you know, what does that mean kind of in real terms? And mm. she would say, oh, well, that means that the likelihood of it getting made is very high now because, mm. you know, he is at the top of his game and he's you know, one of the best screenwriters in the country. And then, um, and then next thing I knew... And I say the next thing, but each one of these bits of time is nine months or a year. (laughs) So the next thing I knew is that it had been greenlit by the BBC. So the BBC had seen um, a draft for an episode and they agreed to buy it, which effectively means that they give the development grant to fund the the making of it. And then um, as that was happening, Netflix boarded and... You know, the whole thing has been, you know, it's been a real eye-opener, the, the process, how mm. difficult it is. You know, you, I, in my head, thought, you know, it's a screenplay, it'll be one or two drafts. But, you know, I think I've seen 20 or 30 drafts, and mm. 20 or 30 drafts is low. <laughs> but, you know, you can go through 50 drafts right. of each episode before, you know, you get to a final version. I think they still change it on the day of shooting. They still change it. And I was invited to... To set to have a look at this, or be, and it was incredibly kind of fascinating. The number of people that are involved in making a TV show, mm. you know, there's hundreds of people there. Yeah, you know, there's costume departments, and they all take me through the wardrobe and their props, and each bottle of wine is their own creation. It's got their own label. Every right. bit of artwork on the wall is, you know, the art department has to mock it up, otherwise you've got <laughs> copyright issues. You can't, you know, there's you, you can't anything which is glass is made out of. Sh- Sugar, in case especially that. And I went to see the stunt boys um, up there, kind of rehearsing the, the stunts. And I was saying to them, "Well, you know, where do you, um, where, where are these guys from?" 
And they were saying, oh, they're from all over the country. And I said, oh, well, I thought, you know, you'd have somebody local. Because they, they were shooting this in Birmingham. And they said, oh, no, um, if you're looking for a black stunt uh, double, uh, you are looking at effectively all of the stunt doubles, black stunt doubles in the country in this really? room. Yeah, there are so few of them. And that oh, yeah. is a function of the fact that there are so few TV uh, productions yeah. involving black people. It does. It points it up so well, doesn't it? Yeah, but it's, you know, it's, it's a shock. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Real shock. And, you know, mine, thankfully, that my book has, you know, a cast of almost entirely um, young black people. Mm. And so talented, you know, the people I, we managed to get, I say we, they managed to get for the car. <laughs> uh, yeah, they couldn't have done it without you. Well, that's what they keep saying, but, you know, I, I'm skeptical <laughs> about that because I've read the screenplay. It's not the same as the book at all. It's, um, it's very different in, in you know, many... Yeah, it has to be in a sense, though, doesn't it? And the way the book... It, yeah, yeah, it can't be replicated really on screen that same way. Yeah, it has to be different, but, you know... In many ways, you know, I, you know, I take my hat off to, to Tom and say, Tom Edge and say, in many ways, it is better. You know, I can't wait to watch it. And I've seen some of the acting and it's, it's superb. It's really, mm -hmm. really so And got, so we should get that before the end of the year. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, we th so it's been shot. It's, it's all in the can, um, as they say. As it, they probably don't say that. It's probably just what I've heard on TV. <laughs> it's in the can. <laughs> That's the history you just created for yourself. Yeah, just have. <laughs> uh, yeah, so and we are told the best that we can be told is that it might be October. But right, I'll look out for that definitely. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to it, and I, you know, I can't wait for this on. That's been brilliant. Thank you very much, Imran. That's an absolutely fascinating chat. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been it's been you know, it's been one of my favourites. Definitely, definitely one of my favourites. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Crime Time FM. 